You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Gordon Jackson. Gordon is not only an executive in the nonprofit sector, but he's also the owner of Yellow Block Bed and Breakfast, a premier short-stay brownstone located in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, that's been featured on both Netflix and The Rachel Ray Show. Now, in this day and age, even if you don't actually utilize Airbnb, you probably know what it is. But Gordon was an early adopter of the platform back when renting your home home to guests for a short-term stay wasn't so common. But like most 26ers, Gordon built his business out of survival and used pure hustle to make it successful. Today, he's preparing to launch a new property in Washington, D.C., which may sound like an easy feat after the success he's seen in Brooklyn. But Gordon is bringing the same consistency and grit to overcome obstacles in his new endeavor. And I'll let him tell you all about it. So please take a listen and enjoy. Gordon. Yes. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How Thank are you? you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I've been looking forward to it, so I'm excited. Yes. yes. I must say, so you are the only guest in the history of the December 26th podcast to have an emergency and not be able to make it and send somebody in your place. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I want to apologize for that. <laughs> you uh, don't just have to apologize. You sent, I sent someone out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad he was able to make it. Mm-hmm. I think that was the uh, the David David Allen had the, yes. the American mm-hmm. Youth Wrestling Program. Um, and uh I'm happy to be here now. We're happy to have you. But, you know, yeah. most people, when they can't make it, they're just like, yeah, sorry. But you you came through in the clutch. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I believe if you can't, uh, if you can't uh, follow through on your commitment, you have to create a, a resolution quickly, mm-hmm. right? Because um, I think we have to keep our word and be about what we say we're going to be about. So in that case, I couldn't, but... um. But I was able to send Dave, so, you know. Well, we out. appreciate it. No problem. And now no you're problem. here. I'm here, We had yes. a great chat. You had some time to, to warm up before we got, we got started. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. You ready to jump into this? I'm ready, I'm ready. I can't, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, I'm ready. I'm All ready. right, let's yeah. do it. Who is Gordon Jackson? Uh, who who am I? Um, first, I, I pride myself on being a dad. Mm-hmm. So I'm a father of three sons, uh, Cairo, Caleb, and Caden. They're 17, 12, and 6. Um, um, I'm a brother. I was a son. My mother had passed, um... So um, I was married at one point. Um, I'm also a vice president of community relations for a non-for-profit in Brooklyn. Um, I also own a small business. So I think those things kind of all kind of kind of make up the person that I am. Mm-hmm. And they kind of lend and contribute uh, to, to who I am and how I kind of drive my, uh, my direction and my decision making. So uh, I hope that's. Yeah, you fit in a lot. Uh, so let's start to unpack that. I'm big on familial roots because I yeah, feel like yeah. a lot of that informs who we are sure, and, and sure. how we make decisions and how we approach life. Yeah, so yeah. tell me about your family structure. Family structure? Yeah, so I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, 1971, to date mm-hmm. myself a little bit. Um, we moved to uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I lived there until I was about nine years old. Uh, my mother had remarried and uh, we had decided to move to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved to upstate New York, to Otisville. Um, I had four older sisters and my brother. So we all packed up um, with a new stepfather and we moved to uh, to upstate New York. I had never been to New York at that point. Um, when Went to middle school and high school in upstate New York. And then when I was 17, going on 18, was able to go to college at SUNY New Paltz. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, spent my first summer after that in the Bronx. Um, went back upstate, graduated in 1993. Um, when I finished undergrad in political science and black studies, um, moved back into New York City, worked for a couple of years, about a year and a half, then went back to graduate school in Binghamton University, back upstate, um, and have been in New York City pretty much ever since then. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of my family structure, I'm the youngest of four. I have four older, wonderful sisters, one older uh, uh, brother. Um, we were raised primarily by my mother, mm-hmm. um, who was who raised us with pretty pretty simple values. You know, listen to what I tell you to do. <laughs> that or, sounds about Or right, you're going to get the belt. Lover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she kept it very simple. Um, and uh, we attribute our success to our mother, mm-hmm. um, who who guided us and and pretty much kept it simple. I mean, we're the same things I think many, many families grow up with. You know, obviously money was tight. Um, and uh, you know, she she encouraged us to use education as a modality for mm-hmm. success. So we were all fortunate enough to, you know, finish high school, um, go into college or graduate school. My sister's, you know, one's working on a PhD right now at Howard. So um, just, you know, keeping it simple, you know, being respectful, um, sticking to your word, working hard, um, being transparent. You know, looking back, I don't think she used all that verbiage. It was more like, listen, and do what I'm telling you to do. But um, but I think those collective values played into who we all are mm-hmm. and kind of helped uh, to drive our childhood. 
Um, we moved around a lot. Um, as, as you know, as my story tells, we had lived in Plymouth, Massachusetts. We lived in Maryland. We lived in upstate New York, obviously. We lived in, uh, where else did we live? We lived, uh, obviously, in New York City. We had moved around so much that um, it constantly forced me to 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 acclimate quickly mm-hmm. and um, to make adjustments quickly and to kind of know my surroundings, to make sure that um, wherever we went, we would be able to go to school and make friends and stuff like that. So um, that helped, you know, that helped play a role later in life and some of the other things that I've been involved with in terms of getting to know people quickly and making adjustments and kind of reading situations to, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, it goes the way we want it to go, so. When people mention that they, you know, weren't raised with a lot and had to move around quite often, I always wonder, were you aware at some point that you become aware that life is a little more difficult for us? You know what? That's a good question. You know, I, I have that conversation with my sons now because um, I'm like, you know, you have, you know, always say, you don't chilling, know how, right? yeah, I'm like, you don't get it. I'm like, you know, we, you know, I, I, I didn't think I realized how I had my first job when I was like nine years old, mm-hmm. um, eight years old. I'm sweeping up hair in a barbershop for change. Um, I'm shoveling snow with bread bags on my on my socks because we didn't have boots. So, um, you know, I knew we didn't have a lot, but it never felt like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my mother, one time she made red beans and rice and it wasn't that much. So she just added more water to it. You know, so looking back, it was hard. I don't ever remember having like a whole can of soda until I got to college, you know. Wow. So I, I look in retrospect, she did the most she could do um, with what we had at that time. Um, and because I was, I was, it was rough, but it never felt that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it never felt that way. It never felt like things were that time. I remember, and you know, I'll tell this story. This is funny. I remember being in high school and, um, or junior, junior high school going into high school and we never had hot water at home. Never. Never. Like hot water was like, if you had it, you had it for like the first 10 seconds. And was right? this in upstate New York? This is in so upstate it's, New York. It's cold. Like... It's, oh, it's brick. It's yeah. freezing. We had, you know, you had bears going in your backyard. Um, it was so cold and, you know, upstate poor is different, a little bit different than living in a city, in an urban city poor, because resources were not available, mm-hmm. right? There were no churches you could go to that were close. And I remember um, some days I would go to school and I would go take a shower before I would start first period because, you know, in, in school they had hot water, right? So um, people like, you know, why you run off the bus so quick and go into the locker room? And I'm like, well, you know, I have to get something out of my locker, but I would really go take a shower because I knew I could take a hot shower at school. So, um, wow. but at the time the water was hot, you know, we did what we had to do. I did what I had to do, but but I didn't even think of it that way. And I was, you know, it made me appreciate the school that much more. So, um, yeah, we were, we, you know, by, by 14, 15, I was driving, you know, um, I mean, I can, I can go on and on with just just what what it you know not having a lot forced me to push myself to have more. And because my mother was pretty much a uh, she was a free spirit in that sense, like you know what, if you think you can do it, make it work. So how were you driving? I don't know what the driving age was at Let the time, you, but at fourteen, at uh, at fourteen, my mother had given me my first driving lesson. Mm-hmm. By fifteen, I had bought my first car. It was a nineteen seventy six Chevy Vega station wagon with a toggle switch. You had to hit a switch under the uh, <laughs> under the dashboard to get the, the fuel pump to work. And it would go zzzz. And if you'd heard that, you knew you could drive. If you didn't hear the fuel pump, you knew it, it wasn't working mm-hmm. right. So by 15, I was driving myself to school. Um, with no license. With no though. license. And, I, and this is how I got messed up. My brother, Bobby, who's a year and a half older, one morning I left him and he was like, um, he was like, listen, you left me this morning. So then when we got to school, we had it out. And that's how the school found out that I didn't, I didn't have my license that day. So then about, but I was 15 going on 16, about mm-hmm. a month and a half later, September hit and uh, I was able to get my license. So um, yeah, I drove to school. <laughs> With no license, you know, about 12 or 13 miles on Route 17 in upstate New York. And this is in the 80s with no driver's license. So, um, listen, we did what we had to do. It was obviously a very different time Um, in New York State. It was very different. Um, But um, but we were not limited by the possibilities of what could be because... um, you had to make you had to make it work. You had to. You know, I was I was killing weeds on a runway at age thirteen in upstate New York at uh, the Wurtsboro Airport. I was the weed killer for uh, for for the for the runway. I would walk around the runway with a weed killer. I worked at a fruit stand. We did. I, I, I washed dishes at the age of ten at a restaurant called Duck Haven Inn on Route Two Hundred Nine. No in kind of New child York. labor laws being uh, no, adhered to. Just I, I tell you, this is this is when I knew. I, I said I have an edge for figuring things out. You you talk about child labor mm-hmm. laws. You, you you make me remember something that happened. So I was working at this restaurant called Duck Haven Inn, and um, the owner was German. His name was Charlie. And Charlie, Charlie was a beast. He would come in, he would curse you out. I was like, 
I had to be like 10, 11 washing dishes to like 10 o'clock at night on school nights. He would come in and, and that's the first time I ever heard of garlic butter, if that, if that helps, right? So he would come in and be like, you know, wash these dishes, wash this pot, wash these pans. And every time he would give me my check, he would give it to me in an envelope. I think back then minimum wage was like two, 225 mm-hmm. or 175 hour. I don't even remember. But every time he would give me my check, it would be short money. And he would write down, you know, you made $45 this week, but then he would write, you know, you're only getting paid 37 so I'm like, Charlie, you know, um, where's the rest of my money? And I'm like 11 years old. He's like, I had to take out taxes. And I had never even heard of taxes. <laughs> so tax season came around and my sister was like, um, hey, you know, we're filing for taxes. So I said, well, I'm filing for taxes because Charlie was taking money out of my check. So you're like 10 or 11. I'm like 11. <laughs> at this point, I'm like 11, maybe 11, 12 years old tops. So she said, uh, she said, well, you know, I said, well, how do you file? And she explained to me, you get back this piece of paper later, you know, know, know what you need for your for your tax return. So I called the restaurant. I called Charlie. And I'm like, Charlie, this is this is Gordon and Bobby. That's my brother. I said, we want to file for our taxes. And, and you took the money out of our check and we need to file. He said, come to the restaurant. So I went to the restaurant and Charlie gave me an envelope with my money. Of course he did. Because he knew at that point. So at that point, at 11 or 12 years old, I'm already realizing you can get beat. Mm-hmm. So that plays out bigger as I got older. Um, and to have learned these lessons younger, I think helped helped make the, you know, it made living upstate New York that much more beautiful. And yeah. it made me that much sharper about, about, uh, about, you know, what, what to be. And I, I thank Charlie for that. I'm glad, you know, Charlie was German. Um, there were, it was a different racial climate in upstate New York. Had it been a little bit different, he may not even have given us that opportunity, mm-hmm. but because he came from Europe and he came from Germany, he said, you know what, I see a need. I'm going to put these kids to work. So even in his attempt to beat us, I still, you know, I'm still grateful to Duck Haven and Restaurant and Charlie and his family. I'm sure by now he's probably moved on, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, listen, Charlie made it possible for, for us to make some money. And and um, I since haven't been beat on my taxes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm a little sharper with that. So, um, you know, that's all part of, of what shapes and molds me and, um, and, and part, part of my story. Yeah, part of my and story. And just, I'm going to digress for a minute, mm-hmm. but I'm always fascinated about these, these stories because I'm sure your son's are living oh. a charmed life. And it's a oh, testament to how much can change in one generation with making pointed, intentional decisions. Yeah, um, they hear all these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, you know, they they hear my stories. Of, and they, I can go on and on with stories uh, of, of, of possibilities and of risk and of, you know, really testament to God's mercy mm-hmm. on us at different times. Um, I talk about my father, who I didn't know very mm-hmm. well. Um, we, like I said, I was born in New Orleans, and I, my my father, who's their grandfather, died in Katrina, wow. which is, you know, uh, what's the chances, right? You know, you have maybe thirteen to fourteen hundred people who perished uh, in Katrina, and my father was one of them. And you had only connected with him shortly before that. Right? Short, I saw him six months before. We have we have an older brother, Errol, mm-hmm. um, who is now living in Houston, um, who had called us for his wedding. So we went down to New Orleans before, uh, you know, for his wedding. We went down, and uh, my father was supposed to be at the wedding. He ended up not making it. So we went to the rooming house that he lived in, um, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing as well um, as one would have liked at mm-hmm. that time. And um, I talked to him for a few minutes, and uh, he met my son. Um, who at the time, I think Cairo had to be, I think he was about two or three. So he was still little. And I introduced him. I don't, you know, it wasn't a long meet and greet. And um, me and him, had, we, had, we had a couple of words, you know, positive. It wasn't an in-depth mm-hmm. conversation. And I told him, I said, well, look, I'll be back. I'll see you again soon. And um, I didn't realize I wouldn't see him again. Wow. Um, so um, all of that shapes me as a father. It shapes me as a dad. It shapes me as wanting to be more committed and be more present. Um, and, and the kids love the stories. I mean, mm-hmm. they love it because um, I'm sure I tell it a little bit differently each time I tell it, you know, as we always do with stories as time goes on. But but the, but the facts remain what they were, and it's a learning lesson mm-hmm. uh, in, in every piece of it. So, um, yeah, we have a good time. We have a good time. Great. So shifting gears a little bit, you've done these odd jobs, kind of hustling yeah, yeah. Um, as a kid and a teen. What was your vision for your career when you got to college? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest. Um, I was so happy to get to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to SUNY New Paltz. Um, you know, I'm, I, I was enamored with the meal plan. You can eat as much cereal <laughs> as you want. Um, you can drink as many sodas as you want. You can get chicken sandwiches. I remember when, I feel like I remember when Snapples came out, mm-hmm. right? Snapples were offered in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the dining hall. Um, so my, my first uh, goal was to stay there. Because everyone was like, you know, you're going to get kicked out mm-hmm. after your first semester if your grades are not good. I was fortunate enough to get through my first semester. Uh, I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha, which was a major, major uh, contributor and support system mm-hmm. to me being on campus, uh, being around brothers who were so positive. Um, I looked up 
Uh, a year and a half later, I'm president of Black Student Union. Um, I later went on to become president of Student Association, had a good time. Um, and then it's time to graduate, right? And I'm like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I had went back and saw my guidance counselor and we tallied up all my credits. And I think she said, you know, you're closest to being a political scientist. So I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to be. So, so I graduated. So you had majored, like... I mean, I did. I picked classes based uh-huh. on... I'll be, I mean, I'll be honest. In the 90s, when you picked your classes, it was based on what your friends took and how, uh-huh. you know, what was the degree the scheduling, of... Scheduling. Like, that's yeah. right. And which ones were a little later, because at that point, you know, we were hanging out a little bit. So um, you kind of picked your classes based on what your peer group did, believe it or not. You know, today it's very different um, with things like, college, you know, college boards and the internet, which wasn't, you know, there, there was no internet at that mm-hmm. time, right? So um, I'm sure to a degree, my academic career choice was shaped by my peer group. Mm-hmm. And I went to school with a wonderful group of brothers uh, who who uh, who went on professionally and they're all doing a lot of wonderful things. And I'm, I'm, I'm always appreciative of that, that mentorship and that peer group of fraternity brothers and friends who supported me through that process. So um, here I graduate in 1993 with a, a bachelor's in political science. Um, I come back into New York City. Um, I get a job working, ironically so, not far from where we're at today, mm-hmm. 12 East 31st Street uh, for a company. They hire me as assistant uh, to the vice president for community affairs mm-hmm. um, for a private corrections company. At the time, we had operated um, the federal and state halfway houses in New York City. I get a call from my my, my good friend and brother, Jack Brown, um, who, who opens up this door and says, hey, you know, come on down. There's a job for you here. He gives me my suit to put on for the interview because that's just the way our network was. And it opened up this wonderful opportunity to come in and work in a political type of environment uh, representing this this company uh, on political affairs and community affairs related issues with inmates. And who knew that uh, here I'd be 20 years later doing the same type of work. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how God can uh, can direct our steps in ways we don't even know it at that time. And it just opens up a, a plethora of opportunity. So, yeah. yeah. So I know you had a stint in pharma. Mm-hmm. Right, I did. As well. I did. So how'd that happen? How did you go from community affairs to pharma and then back now yep, yep. Uh, in a similar space. You know, it's it's interesting because, um, again, my, my social network, we had a, I, another fraternity brother who was doing pharmaceutical mm-hmm. sales. He was working for a biotech company at the time. And he said, you know, you would be good at sales. And I said, um, selling what? Because we had sold some things at that point. <laughs> you know, so I had made a couple of sales in 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 um I had sold teddy bears, luggage. I mean, I was a, I've always been a hustler. I've always mm-hmm. figured out ways to make some things work. And he says, you know, um, did you ever think about selling medicine? And I was like, no. I mean, I I was political science, mm-hmm. not like biology science. There's a, there's, a, there's a leap. So he said, I think you can do it. So um. I put on my suit, not the same one I had worn six years prior, but I had put the suit on, um, went on a few interviews. Um, and fortunately, a company called Solvay Pharmaceuticals extended me an offer to sell a hypertension medication in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, it was, it was, this was uh, early 2000s, late 90s. Um, uh, Brooklyn was very different then than it is today. Um, and I saw a need to be able to educate people about hypertension and wellness, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, talk about these medications. So I'm... Um, Always grateful to uh, Solvay Pharmaceuticals for opening up that door. Um, I did very well, um, got married, um, bought a home in Brooklyn. Um, I'm seeing my life just take a, a completely new direction from having worked in, uh, you know, worked in ho- uh, some hotels upstate New York to to uh, work in fruit stands to an airport to movie theaters. And now here I am, I'm, uh, I'm selling medicine to doctors in Brooklyn. Um, did very well, interviewed um, shortly after that with... I see. Second company I went to was uh, Abbott Laboratories, mm-hmm. Chicago-based company. Um, I was a neuroscience uh, specialist, um, so I had covered the New York City territory. I had actually had about a seven million dollar account with all in New York, um, and was covering uh, skilled nursing facilities, adult homes um, with the product for, uh, for Abbott. Did very well with that. Um, later went on to J and J. I know we share some J and J. Some J uh, and J history. Some J and J history. Johnson Johnson, wonderful company, mm-hmm. opened up some doors uh, and um, had covered. Uh, some hospital and uh, uh, hospital accounts in in Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, for J and J, and so some some uh, psychiatry based medication. So I was a um, psychiatry representative, psychiatry specialist for uh, for J and J, which was amazing. Right mm-hmm. now, why why all this matters is uh, later on I would work in mental health in a different capacity. Right, so here I'm learning about the pharmacokinetic and the pharmacodynamic uh, uh, measures of a of a drug, only to find later how this would translate into my comprehension of schizophrenia and it's affective disorder and bipolar disorder and a whole bunch of other uh, mood disorders that kind of accompany um, the battery of challenges that folks have with mental health, which is very real.
real. So um, who knew that uh, the work you do would all kind of tie in together? Right. So um, and, you know, with the work I do today, we we I work with a company today where mental health is a is a really big portion of the work that we do to remove barriers from folks who are uh, who are challenged with homelessness or um, challenged with a, a history of incarceration or, or just with any internal barriers. So it all kind of tied back together again. And um, I think when you're living, you're kind of going through the steps. You don't see that, right? right? Because you're just kind of hustling. You're trying to pay your bills. You're trying to keep things moving. And you don't know how it all ties together, right? And then, you know, the story's still not finished, right? Mm -hmm. Because the pages are being written in our stories every single day. But... um, yeah, that's how that's how it uh that's how it all tied together with the with the pharma work. And um it just it just opened up, you know, I I'm you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, as you know, was was wonderful, still continues to be it pushes for innovation, mm-hmm. pushes for uh, for technology and research and development to come up with new ways to to treat so many different disease states. So to have been able to to do some work in that space uh in the sales capacity was was humbling and um and I, it definitely sharpened me up. Yeah. So, uh, and we we've talked about it on this show how like you can be in a situation and it's cool. You may, mm-hmm. It may not be your life's work, but it's cool, right? Right, sure, scale, sure. Whatever. And you don't realize how there are skills that are being enhanced or developed That's that right. you can utilize for the next phase of your life. And it's one of the things that we like to promote on this show that that nothing is for naught. Like That's everything right. in your right. life is is shaping you for who you're supposed to be to do your what is your passion or your life's work as well. It, it can all be used and you'll have those full circle moments mm-hmm. where it might take five years, seven years, 10 years before you figure out why you had to go through X, Y, and Z. But it, yes. it all works together in some way. I cannot um, agree more. But taking it back to that time, right? And if, if anybody knows anything about pharma, especially late 90s, Right. Early 2000s, which is when I was in pharma, early sure. 2000s, um, the money was good. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The perks were good. Oh, yeah. And they're still they're still good, but things have changed. Regulation has come into play. Prescription sure. Drug Marketing Act, all these things yeah, where yeah. um, it's a, a lot more regulated and restricted than it was back then. Where, like, you were just throwing money around as a rep to these doctors, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it was uh, you know, taking them to dinner, really nice yeah, dinner. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. still happens, but there are limits. And also, now we're just post-Great uh, Recession, so yeah, companies yeah. don't throw as much money. I, I can remember... I think my, at the time, my allotments for meals, for just for me, right? Right, right. Was, I think it was $75 for breakfast. Yep. Who was eating that much yep. breakfast? That's right, that's right. It was like $150 for lunch and yep. $250 for dinner. That's like, right, that's for right. For one, for one person. Yep. That yep. does not exist anymore. That's right. But but when you have access to, to that level of perks mm-hmm. and the bonuses and all that stuff and the yep. things the cost of living adjustments and the car and all the things yep, that they're yep, going yep. to give you. What makes you decide to leave that? You know, it's, it's you, you know, you bring it up the uh, the allotments, mm-hmm. the expense reports, the compliance, obviously, mm-hmm. the training. Um, I loved I loved selling medicine. Mm-hmm. I loved interacting with doctors. I loved talking, obviously. Um, I loved the fact that I was ch- challenged to learn all of this scientific information to pass uh, a battery of exams, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, to be a to be a pharmaceutical representative, you have to be knowledgeable about this. These yeah. states is a, a lot that goes with it. Um, but it wasn't my passion, mm-hmm. you know. And I said to myself, I always said I am making. I mean, I remember one year, and I, you know, I'll say this as a testament to Abbott. I remember one year, um, I was winning so many awards. <laughs> That I was like, I remember I went home and I was like, this can't be happening. They gave me a company car upgrade. Um, I had made well over six figures mm-hmm. that year. Um, they flew me into Ohio to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to, for like, I could grab 50 items in 50 seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm grabbing coach watches. I'm grabbing, <laughs> I felt like, I'm like, this can't be for real. And um, then I would come back to Brooklyn and I would see what people were going through. Mm-hmm. And then I would go to a doctor's office on Fulton Street or I'd go to a doctor's office in Bed-Stuy. And here I'm going and I'm, I'm, I'm killing it. I have on my suit, right. my tie. I'm coming out of my out of my, my 2002 Taurus. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the people classic standing out. Classic pharma car, Oh, by yeah, the classic, way. <laughs> classic pharma. Yeah, you know, you know the deal. And I'm coming out and I'm seeing people that look like me outside the doctor's office who are struggling. Mm -hmm. And something about that called me and said, you know, I know I'm making it and I know I'm getting it. You know, things are right. I bought a home in Bed-Stuy. I mean, I'm doing things that my, our ancestors' wildest dreams, as we Mm -hmm. say, I'm living it as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, I can stop and buy whatever I want for lunch. But then I'm seeing people that look like me from the communities that we live in that are still struggling. Mm-hmm. And I said, this can't be it. You know, if only I'm making it. But then when I go back into to where I live, I see folks who are not making it. There must be another calling for me. So um, that was a tough decision, right? Because yeah. at some point you're making that shift. 
financially. Uh, and this is around 2007. I said, you know, I'm going to go back. J&J had went through some organizational mm-hmm. structural changes. Um, they had given me a nice, a nice package. You know, they, you know, at that point, companies would downsize right. and grow. Franchises would grow. Um, so I had a chance to say, you know, do I want to interview and go back out and uh, and really interview with another J&J company? Or at that point, do I want to make a move and get back into human service? I opted to go back to work in New York halfway houses. In 2007, went back to work at the uh, the Bronx halfway house, mm-hmm. which was under, it worked under another company that we had worked for prior to that. Um, did some good work with them and kind of d- dived back into re-entry, mm-hmm. right? And working with um, ex-offenders at the time, the, the term re-entry wasn't really used. It was really more ex-offenders, folks coming home from prison or jail. Um, I've never used the word ex-convicts. I've always been, you know, that's 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 whack. You know, mm-hmm. that's that kind of speaks to a person's conviction right. rather than the successes and the growth that they've had. But that's always was my calling. Um to, to go back and work with folks who are coming back home from one of the 120 or so federal prisons in the United States, one of the 60 or so plus New York State Department of Corrections facilities, and to go back and figure out how do we offset the injustices that had happened to uh, the people who had been either wrongfully convicted or or um, given sentences imposed that were longer than they should have received. Um, and that was always my passion. Um, so uh, the first time I actually stepped, this is how we came to New York, kind of dialing back a little bit. When I was uh, when I was when my mother had remarried and we moved from Pennsylvania to New York, my mother had met a, a gentleman who had worked in a halfway house in Pennsylvania. He accepted a job with the Federal Bureau of Prisons in mm-hmm. Oldersville, New York, which is how I stepped my first the first time I stepped foot on a federal compound. I was nine years old. Wow. And who's to say later that uh, that would still be the work that I would be engaged in? Uh, almost 40 years later, um, which really speaks to the testament of a dad, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it be a stepfather, a co-parent, an uncle, um, a a neighbor, a mentor, what impact those words in the career that he did had on us later, right? Because uh, it helped shape my perception. I don't even know if I realized that until later, it shaped my perception of where my career may have taken me. Um, Because at at nine, he was the first person I saw with a regular job, with a uniform, working at a prison. And um, that, to me, established what, what I thought a responsible man looked like. Um, he took, you know, he did the, his best to take care of, of my mother and us at that time. I mean, looking back, and they, their marriage didn't last long, but uh, look, it was about four or five years they stayed married. But looking back, you know, who does that today? How many men would marry a woman who had six children? Right. Right. And at the time, I'm like, you know, I look back at the pictures of him and I'm like, you no, know, he was he was smooth. He probably had a lot of <laughs> options, you know, but he, he chose my mother, who, who was a beautiful woman. And um, I don't know how many men would make that commitment today. Right. So um, so for that, I, I always like to say, you know, we're thankful to him um, for for having made us that 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 move and moved us mm-hmm. into New York, which really opened up more aspects mm-hmm. of. Uh, of our story. Um, so um, I don't even know. I know how about I didn't go too far. No, no. You're taking me back. I told yeah. you it's a conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Okay, and it, okay. it often, what I, we found on the show, it triggers memories that you hadn't really yeah, thought about. No, in no, a while, it does. It's taking me back. Which we love. That's right, right, right. right. Okay. Um, but so coming that, you know, coming into that full circle moment where you move back into sort of direct support yep, um, yep. services for the reentry population, was it an adjustment though, going from the corporate world? And I, and I tell people who don't understand pharma. Sure. Like you go to these pharma conventions, it's like summer camp. Like the entertainment, the you know the, the access yep, that they yep, give you, yep. whatever. But giving all that up, even though you were passionate about this work, was there an adjustment period to no. get used to it? Let, let me tell you when I knew I was in the right place. Mm-hmm. I had, and I'll say a name. This this is a uh, I don't know if I can say. I'm going to say it right. Mm-hmm. My second client on my caseload was Sam Waxel, who was part of uh, the 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 end. Um, he had had a, a cancer research company that was uh, loosely affiliated with Martha Stewart going mm-hmm. to prison. And, you know, this is all public information, yeah. so there's nothing. He's on my caseload. He's the second person I do an intake on who came out of pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, later, I ended up getting another representative who had gotten into some legal trouble because during that time, a lot of reps had gotten into some legal trouble. And actually, at that point, were being sentenced to federal mm-hmm. time. Um, whether right or wrong, be it, you know, the legalities of their situation was of, of no concern of mine. They were coming home and my job was to support them. So, no, uh, it, it wasn't a leap for me because here I am now dealing with uh, with, with attorneys who had went to prison for, uh, well, not attorneys, medical doctors who had went to jail for Medicaid fraud, people in higher education who had misappropriated federal dollars through student loans, um, folks who had just been hustling some dudes who had been selling drugs to, to folks who had did mail fraud. So I'm dealing not, it's not that much different for mm-hmm. me than talking to doctors. I mean, I hate, you know, no slight on the medical industry, right? But I get what but, you're um, saying. But yeah. these are professionals who had stepped into some gray areas of the law. And what I found a lot of times is um, 
people did not intentionally break the law. Mm-hmm. I think when you're an entrepreneur and your step, if you want to push the envelope and, and you want to take your business from A to B to C to D, you're going to have to play in that gray space. And sometimes that gray space is not that regulated, mm-hmm. right? And depending on how federal statutes fall and the time of, of federal convictions kind of being laid out, depending on what prosecutor's office is coming from the attorney general's office, can dictate what charges are being uh, sought out by, uh, by federal prosecutors at that time. So I've seen different waves of federal crimes being prosecuted uh, over the last 20 years. We know back in the 90s, um, if you sold drugs, um, then you were, and you had sold certain amount of drugs. If you had sold over 250 grams or 500 grams, you went out of town, you were picking up a federal charge, you might get 120, 240 months. We later saw that folks were going to uh, to prison for uh, for mail fraud, and then we saw mortgage fraud, and then we saw uh, frauds in higher education because of obviously because of misappropriated money. So um, from healthcare to mortgages to to stocks and bonds, I've seen different waves. So for me, no, it wasn't a big leap. Um, I would sit across the table from somebody who was trying to get their life together, whether they looked like me or didn't. I saw fathers who were trying to heal relationships with their wives and with their significant others. I saw mothers who were trying to salvage relationships mm-hmm. with their children and husbands who had been away. So um, no, I mean, I, I, I jumped right back into it. If it was, I, I felt so comfortable. I felt at home talking to people who had um, who had gaps. Mm-hmm. And, and I learned a tremendous amount. I learned one of my best lessons at the halfway house. And I remember a guy told me, um, older guy, I won't, I won't mention his name, um, older organized crime guy. He came in and he was like, um, he said, Jackson, never tell a lie. And I'm like, you know, you're the last person. Now. He just came home doing like 20, 25 joints. And I'm like, never. T- I'm sure you told. And his case was high profile. They made a mo- It was in a movie. I won't, I won't get into much more than that. And um, he told me, he said, never tell a lie. And I said, um, I said, why? And he said, he said, one thing I learned in prison was that uh, I would see guys when I first went into prison. And they would tell me why they went to prison and why they were here and what they did. He said, I would see them 10 years later at another federal facility and I would ask them again the same story. He said they would change the story up. He said, so it's human nature that when you lie, you don't you don't tell the lie the same way right. because because we don't remember lies. Right. The truth is what it is. So if you tell the truth all the time, you may make it, you know, you may tell a story a little a little differently. But the but the essence of the story remains the same. He said the human brain does not remember lies in a formatted way. He said he saw that. So, um. You know, this it's life it's, it's life lessons like that and that work that I never forgot that helped drive uh, the culture of how I do business, um, my value system, the way I parent, the way I try to uh, engage in my interpersonal relationships. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it was things like that that made me feel like I'm at home. Um, I'm continuing to do good work rather than selling a medicine or a product. Now I'm selling the concepts of you can make it. Right. You can be successful. You can still be a good father, even though you've made some mistakes. You are still a wonderful mother. You are still a good wife, um, even though you have had some challenges. And I actually got to see families heal. So on the pharmaceutical arm, I sell folks getting better because of all the wonderful medications that the industry made. But doing human service work, um, I got to see people do good Good work mm-hmm. and heal families. So I think the two were um, were were interchangeable. So you mentioned how some of the lessons have dictated how you do business, yep, which yep. is a great segue. Yeah, yep, um, right. because you had this storied career professionally. Yeah, but then you turned your focus and your downtime to real estate and hospitality. Yes. So how did that happen? How did how did you get? What were the origins of Yellow Block? B&B. Bed and breakfast. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Yellow Block Bed and mm-hmm. Breakfast is a bed and breakfast mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and just, you know, just to tell you how things tie in, while living upstate New York, one of my other summer jobs was working at the uh, the resort hotels in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So um, we would get all of the Jewish folks would come up from New York City. I was about to say, City. are you talking about like the Jewish uh, Oh, yeah, resorts? yeah. Yeah, I mean, we would we worked upstate. I worked at the Catskills. I worked at the Homawack. I worked at the Neverly. I worked at the Concord. And um, the summertime for us was just wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. Folks would come up from New York City and would come up and would bring their families, and we worked, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really a really strong revenue stream for Sullivan County and for the Catskills. Um, I got to meet a lot of wonderful people. I valet parked cars. I drove cars I never drove before. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just a wonderful opportunity to learn about money, to learn about people, to learn about hospitality, and to um, to talk to different people, right? That I otherwise wouldn't have had these exchanges with. So who knew that years later, um, I would buy this house from pharmaceutical sales in Brooklyn, New York, in Bed-Stuy. Um, I'd rent this house out as apartments. I rented out rooms. I ended up buying another property in Brooklyn. And um, 
I just dived right into that 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 rental space quickly. Um, and may and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because growing up where we lived upstate, I was so embarrassed where we lived. And this is this is the crazy part. The house that we lived in in Route 209 in upstate New York was a yellow house. Mm-hmm. And the house was owned by a family. Um, I mean, I can go on and on how how life connects the dots, but um this particular home was owned by um was owned by the Greenwald family, who the daughters uh this uh Julie and 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 Cena uh Julie Greenwald and and uh and Cena they rode the school bus with us. Mm-hmm. Who knew that Ju- uh, Julie would go on and be a big a big a big shot big big time in the music industry um, wow. and worked at Def Jam and a host of other things and actually created an opportunity for me to do an internship mm-hmm. with Def Jam years later. Um, but this was a her her father owned this rental house. And, you know, it was, listen, he created housing. My mother didn't have a lot of money and we lived there. Um, and and this house that we lived in, I wasn't really particularly proud of it. Mm. You know, it leaned a little bit, but it was home. And um, I said, you know, when I grow up and I get some money, I have to live in a house that my kids won't be embarrassed about. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, we later, you know, I, that always drove me. I said, man, when I have kids, this house has to look right. Make a speed the story up. I buy this house in Brooklyn. So I, the first thing I did when I buy this brownstone, this brick house in Brooklyn, was was spray painted the front. We we steam cleaned the front. We repointed it so that the outside of it would look nice, mm-hmm. which is crazy, right? Because you started you think, with the exterior. Yes, because growing up, that's it's usually funny, the last thing. The last did, thing, yeah. but because I wanted it to look nice, I made the outside of it look nice, which is completely mm-hmm. crazy in retrospect. Um, so I took uh, rented apartments. We rent. I renovated this house over the years, and then um. In 2011, I had come up with this idea. I said, you know what? I'm not doing apartments anymore. Um, had went through a divorce, was in the middle of a divorce, and I said, I need to generate more revenue um, so I can still take care of my family given the the, the worst of this situation, that, that, that how my life is changing. I need to make more money. So I said, let me try to rent out rooms. I had done room rentals before, but room rentals are always a little bit crazy because you never rent right. a room to one person, you rent it to two, right? Because um, somebody always comes with their girl. It always mm-hmm. gets a little complicated. So... um. So I'm gonna rent out this room and I'm gonna put it on Craigslist. Craigslist at the time was hot, so I put Craigslist this ad was up. Popping it was popping. I did it. Yeah. A, a lady reaches out to me from Florida and she's like, "Listen, I need to come up and stay for 28 days. I'm having I'm having a baby, and my insurance is only good in New York." So I'm looking at her the way That's you're looking sweet, at me, okay. like, "Yeah, but she has that money." So I'm like, "You can come." She comes, she pays, everything goes well. A friend of mine later tells me about Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like 2011, 2012. I throw my listing up. I'm re- but at this point, I'm renting out like one room, $25 a night, $30 a night. Well, this was early, early in the Airbnb, game. Yeah. Early in the Airbnb game. I was one of the first hosts uh, in New York. People are coming to the house. They're looking at me like, is it safe? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I think so. You know, you're going to be all right. And and I'm I'm just I'm just like really using all my hospitality and sales skills to get people to stay. Um, super grateful to Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO, and all these different platforms that allowed me, and, and Craigslist at the time as well, that allowed me to get the brand out. Um, I said uh, around 2012, I'm going to call it Yellow Block Bed and Breakfast, which ties me back to pharmaceutical sales. I had worked for J, uh, J&J. Mm-hmm. We'd worked for J&J, obviously. Jansen had launched a product called Risperdal. We were giving away these yellow Legos as the uh, as the premium item for the kids mm-hmm. in the doctor's offices. Um, and my son would always pick up a yellow Lego when I would take him to preschool. So everything I've ever done, I said, I'm going to call it Yellow because he picked up the Yellow Block Lego. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where the name Yellow Block comes from. It's uh, really... Um, uh, a recognition of Cairo and the toy he played with. And I felt like that was his security item because I was like, come on, let's go to school. And um, we would let him like uh, uh, draw on the walls with crayons because he, he's so smart. He's brilliant. Um, in fact, we're going to, to Morehouse on Tuesday nice. for him to interview. Uh, you know, God willing, he'll get in to see the campus. Um, and he's always, he's just a, he's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Dad, I have to have this yellow block. So now it got to the point where I would hide a few of them around so we could get out the house in the morning. Um so that's really where the name Yellow Block came from. Um, and everything I've ever done associated with Yellow Block has just been successful. And it's always been a, a, a motivator um, and a driver for me to want to do more. So um, to speed up the story, make a long story short, um, I go from one room to two rooms. And then one day I went to the house and there are like 20 people in this house. I got like people from Germany in one room, Belgium in another room. France in another room. Um, somebody from Queens is in the other room. So you weren't living there at this point. 
Yes, of oh, course you I were, So you were there and then had all these people in these various rooms. In every room. So I'm coming, I'm going, I'm in and you out. You can tell I'm a different person because I'm like, there's no way you were living there. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I was I was there. You know, you want to be in compliance with yeah. Airbnb mm-hmm. policy. Yes, you have right. to live there, right? Well, so I'm living. Hoteling and all that great no, stuff. No, never that. New home York, we did, he was not doing that. <laughs> no, okay, no. I'm, New York I'm, City. Yeah, I'm home sharing 101. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sharing my space. It's mm-hmm. working out. Um, but I looked, I was like, yo, we have a lot of people in this house. So I said, you know what? I'm doing groups. Mm-hmm. And at that point, something, the light bulb went off and I said, you know, this is probably the hustling me went off in my head. I said, you know what? I'm doing groups. I went on Airbnb. I said, who can host 10 people? At the time, the number was small. So I said, I'm doing 10. Then I said, I'm doing 14. I'm putting beds together while people are coming <laughs> from the airport. I'm getting money. I'm running to Ikea. Ikea just opened in Brooklyn. Um, and I'm, I'm literally, I remember starting, I would take, I was short pillows. I would take, my sons can tell you this story. I would like take their pillows and be like, listen, we need these for guests. We have to wash them because things were so scarce in the, in the beginning. Um, make a long story short, I became kind of the group specialist on Airbnb mm-hmm. at that time. Um, no one could do 20. No one could do 22. No one could do 24. At the largest group I've ever hosted was 32 people. I had a uh, um, T- uh, Kyoto University rugby team. Mm-hmm. They came over for a few matches. I hosted them. Wait, so, so how many bedrooms? Not eight bedrooms. Eight bedrooms. Eight okay. bedrooms. Um, so that's uh, still a lot of configuring for 30, 30 plus people. Yeah, but you know, um, you know, we were a little creative mm-hmm. with how we did it at the time. And my, I prided myself really on being able to host the most people for the least amount of money, mm-hmm. but not just host. Um, fresh sheets, clean sheets, breakfast. Um, I ordered pizzas when you came in. And I really tried to deliver a really robust customer service mm-hmm. experience um, because I had knew that from working in hospitality. I knew that from working in pharmaceutical sales that the customer had to get what they paid for. And it didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter what part of the world, what country. I wanted to make sure that when they came into Brooklyn, that they saw um, a black man doing business that was fair, that was transparent, and that would deliver every single thing that I promised. Because I felt like, to a degree, I was representing black men, not just in Brooklyn, but in the United States, right? Because I know that at times, there are some stigmas and some, some wrong stigmas associated with how we do business. And I wanted the world to know that we don't do business that way. Right. And that we are transparent and that you will get what you want and that you will be safe and that we don't have to water down the way we do things, but that you can come in and get a genuine experience at an affordable rate. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that happened. Um, the reviews were good. Speed things up. 2018, I get an email. I get casted for a show on Netflix. Um, I'm always grateful to the folks at um, Critical Content, um, Netflix, uh, George Versoch and his team, they came in and filmed us for five days in December of 2018 with the kids. And um, we were featured as um, uh, the Brooklyn Brownstone show number four mm-hmm. on uh, on Netflix, the show Stay Here, which um, I can't thank uh, uh, Genevieve enough and Peter enough uh, for coming in and, and just, and, and the film crew and everybody who came in and filmed us and helped us tell this story. Um, I can't thank 50 Grand enough. Um, ironically so, the block that the house is on is the same block that Biggie was on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and 50 came out and, 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 uh, and filmed with us and kind of told a piece of, of this story about Brooklyn that was still kind of new to me because I had lived in Fort Greene, the house is in Bed-Stuy. I was kind of learning it during the show and, um, and really just opened up another piece of, of, of Big's history and Brooklyn's history and, and also told a narrative about how Brooklyn is changing but that there are hardworking families in Brooklyn who still survive, and um, and and people should come visit and spend that and spend some money and enjoy New York City and let Brooklyn be a place where you rest. So um, yeah, it's been it's been it's been an amazing journey, um, to say the least. It's uh, it's been humbling. Um, um, I try to give back as much as possible, um, and uh, and do good work that represents how appreciative we are mm-hmm. of this opportunity to be, have been put on that stage to do business. And I'm sure the biggie element has to help, right? Because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from Europe and everywhere have, there's this mystique around biggie um, as an icon. So then being able to stay on that block, I'm sure is, is, is a factor for people. As oh, well. yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you the, it's funny. Cause um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were filming the show, um, it really, it really challenged me to look back at Big's old videos and look at look at you know he you know he was an artist right he was a father obviously right he's a son and the depth of him as a young artist it it challenged me to go back and look at him and say you know who who was this man and and what would his life have been had it not ended so tragically mm-hmm. right but um it's humbling to know that uh and I you know I I'm and there's obviously a mural I encourage folks to come see the King of New York mural it's on the corner of Bedford and Quincy um 
try to touch base, 50 grand will do a tour and will tell you about the block and will tell you about the history of what it was like back in the in the, in the early 90s and mid 90s when they were there. And um, it's just humbling to say that, you know, from a block that he once hustled on and a block that he once spent his time on, that it could have evolved to be a place where I can do business with my family and folks can come back and get a, a higher level of appreciation for his music. Because um, if you, you know, if you listen back to the lyrics of what he says, he's referencing things in the neighborhood, things in the block that helped shape and mold how he viewed himself as a person. Um, and I wish I got to meet him. I never got to meet Big, but um, but I can tell you that um that that it makes the experience that much richer. And um I'm I'm humbled to be to be part of that. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And now you're expanding. Yes, yes. DC. So we we're in DC. Mm -hmm. So um I picked we were able to purchase another property in DC that's being renovated currently. Um to expand uh, the Yellow Block brand into D.C. Um, so my, the goal with that house mm -hmm. is to make it a, a possible workspace where groups can come in um, and, and do some non-for-profit work in D.C. So we're trying to expand the Yellow Block arm to, into the non-profit arena so that I can... Um, I really want to create a space and give back where groups from all over the country, all over the world can come into D.C. and be part of change, mm -hmm. right? And be part of uh, invoking their message in a way that makes this country stronger, that challenges some of the narrative about what's not possible um, and to create a space where groups can come and engage with their elected officials, uh, engage with the government process and learn about ways that they can be part of constructive changes, whether it be domestically or internationally. And I'm hoping that the house can be used as a, uh, a base for that. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to not make it a traditional B&B space but to make it a space where um, if a group wants to come in from Belgium, if the group wants to come in from Brazil or from Africa or from um, North Carolina or from Mississippi or from, um, you know, um, you, you pick up a, a place and their challenge that they may be able to come into this space and use it uh, in an effective way to be able to discuss change and how we can make um, the fabric of this country better. So D.C. Is a, is a very special place. There's so much history in D.C. Um, and there's so many sights to see. So for me, it was it seemed like a natural progression to create a group space in D.C. that people cannot just do work in, but a place that you can sleep and eat and um and get to see all the wonderful sights and, and, and embellish yourself and the mambo sauce and, and the go-go music um and, and all of the wonderful government historical sites that are in D.C. There's so much rich culture in D.C. Um, the folks in D.C. are sharp people. Uh, there's so many wonderful schools and universities. So I'm hoping that this space can be used to complement what's existing in D.C. already. So, um, you know, God willing, we'll be in D.C. in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, the project is moving. So so we we get into a lot of inspiration on this show, mm -hmm. but we also love tactical information. Sure, sure. So how did you make the purchase of the second property happen? Were you stacking money from Yellow Block B&B, yeah. the original Yellow Block? Yeah, yeah. I'll mm -hmm. tell you, this is uh, this is crazy. So um, this is this is how we were. I was able to purchase the second property. Um, I have a friend who does real estate in DC. Um, I had been back and forth for DC uh, for the company that I work for currently, uh, Core Services Group. Um, we do a great deal of B, uh, work in DC. We're, we're expanding into DC. So I said, I looked around. I said, you know, I wouldn't mind buying a, buying a house here. So I called my friend Kev. I'm like, Kev, show me some spots. He showed me a spot in um, in Southeast. He shows me a spot. Now, at the time, I didn't know where I was, but I could read the streets. I could see where I'm at. And I'm like, you know, this is cool. That's cool. Take me here. He shows me four houses. The last house that he shows me is a little yellow house on the corner. Mm -hmm. And I said, Kev, that's the one. And I'm talking like I have money, but I have some money, but not a <laughs> lot of money. Not enough to be like, that's the one, mm -hmm. but enough to be able to feel confident to say, obviously we were looking, right? So there was um, there was some money saved up to make this possible. So I'm going to break down the numbers because I want folks to be able to walk away and understand exactly what I did. We appreciate um, that. <laughs> yeah, this is straight up. So I did a refinance um, with the house in New York. Mm -hmm. I took out, I think, $175,000. Now, me being a little older and wiser than I was, say, 15 years ago, I said, I'm not touching this money. I'm going to leave it in the bank. So um, I said, you know, if God creates an opportunity where I can use this money, I'm going to use it. So I'm not spending any of this money. So I'm part of me, my confidence is up. When you have $175,000 in the bank, you feel good, right? Yeah. It gives you some sense of mental liberation, which is why I encourage folks to save. Because I think when you save, you can be a little bit more creative about what you might want to do. So this money's in the bank. So when I'm telling Kev, that's the house, part of me is because I have some money saved up. I'm looking at the price on the sheet. The house is, um, how much was it? It was... 276, mm -hmm. which in DC is a still. Right. Right. Um, and DC is 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 uh is changing and gentrifying at a faster pace than New York, right? Um, so I said there's an opportunity here to to be a homeowner and to get into a space that has a rich history and still be able to buy a house. So he says, um, 
okay. And he comes back the next day and says, this house, you can't buy it like that. It's in an auction. So I'm like, an auction? <laughs> I never heard an auction going well. So I was like, an auction? I'm like, so let's bid. I'm like, how do we do it? He's like, you bid online with your phone. So we go, we bid online. And this is, speaks to taking risk. Mm -hmm. So I'm bidding online and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So I'm at work trying to act like, I, you know, I'm, in, I'm into my work, <laughs> but I'm looking at my phone trying to figure out, am I going to win this bid? I win the bid. So now I'm getting the house for like 276 I call everybody. I, I won this house in an auction. But so now you get little, it for the list price. I get it for the list price. Even though price. it was at auction, which is amazing. Which is, a, right. Yeah. But there's one little problem. I don't have 276 <laughs> So I'm like, you know, that's not, a, I can get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Only for me to find you can't get a mortgage mm -hmm. because the house needed so much work. To speed things up, they reject my, uh, my bid. And they come back and said, the seller doesn't want it. We're putting it back up again. So I said, okay, but now I'm so emotionally caught up in this house because it's yellow, it's on the corner, it has a porch, and um, it's everything that I had envisioned for the next yellow block. To make a long story short, I bid on the house again, I win, they drive the price up to 376. So but now grand. I'm in. But you I, didn't have the 276 cash. No, and, and I didn't have three. to. And now I'm in another 100 racks and I don't have that either. So what do I do? I'm thinking I can get a mortgage. I reach out to some hard money lenders. Fortunately, some folks were willing to make, to make, me, to make me a loan. The, the rates were high. I said, I'm going to try something different. So I went out to four different banks over two days and put in loans for personal applications. Mm. I went to Citibank. Um, I, I guess after this interview, banks won't be loaning <laughs> me money, but let's put the information out. TD Bank, um... What's the other one? Um, Municipal Credit Union. And um, who was the fourth one? Um, Santander Bank, mm -hmm. who, was, who was tough. They were tough. Um, they all extended me these, these small personal loans. So I was able to actually purchase this, this second property with four small so personal loans. So you cobbled loans. it together. Yes. And, you I know, I say it's all God. Before. I know it's crazy. It's all God because what's the chances of all four of them approving these loans? Right. And it, I had done it so quickly that um, I'm not even sure they had time to check one loan versus the other one. But, uh, but I've been, I've been, um, and then I reached out to a friend who um, I was still short about twenty three thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and I called him. I said, um, I said, I need them, I need this loan. And he said, um, Look, it'll be there tomorrow. And he wired the money to me, and um, I wired. Now this is where it gets crazy. The whole time I'm communicating with this company with the auction, they're in India. The call center is in India. So I'm calling them up and um, no slight on call centers in India. You know, business is good. But I, it, for me, it was a, it was a, a bit of a stretch because I like to go where my money's being wired that I can find you if yeah. things don't work. And I'm calling and I'm like, listen, I'm not comfortable. So they put me in touch with a call center in Georgia. The woman assures me the process is legal. I go to Citibank on Myrtle Avenue in Brooklyn. I wire them this money. I wait a day or two. They send me the paperwork. Um, about 10 days later, I get the, 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 the deed that uh, the, the deed was recorded. The title was recorded and now I own this house. Yeah, DC. no, I'm just going to be honest. I would have tapped out between the India call center, having to yeah. pull money from everywhere. I would have been like, this is just, you know, what? It's not for me. That went through my mind. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, you know what? Maybe this is uh, and I, and I wanted to tap out. Trust me, I did. But somewhere between, I think the house being yellow, um, Ego, I think mm -hmm. ego plays a role. I can make this happen. Um, I know I can do this. And um, and risk, right? I've always taken risk, right? So I said, you know what? Um, if this if, if this is a hustle, this is a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a good, good hustle because they got a lot. I'm on online. I'm reading about this. I mean, I'm doing due diligence. I'm calling. And everybody I spoke to was like, you're going to be okay. Including my friend who was the broker who had done other deals like this. So I think the takeaway message is: if you want to play in a bigger space, you're gonna you're gonna have to take some risk. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have to trust beyond what you know, and you're gonna have to take some calculated risk by doing some research to find out should you step out there and take these chances. Every single person I know who's done well has stepped out into that gray area. Mm -hmm. And taking some risk. No less of a risk than, than, than this wonderful podcast that you guys are doing, as you know. Um, it's a risk. Mm -hmm. And I think um when you when you when you grew up and you didn't have anything, to go back to having nothing again for me is not that difficult, mm -hmm. right? Because um I already know what it's like to be broke and I was happy. Um I know what it's like to have had some moderate success with a long way to go to be more successful. So um my success is not gauged in how much money I make, but rather um, how I feel about doing business. And yeah, we should trust a call center in India. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we should trust a process that we don't know about. Because um, if we, if I stayed in my comfort zone with what I just know about, then um, I know what I'm going to get from that. So I had to challenge myself and say, um, you know, um, 
India as a company, as a country, is operating on a global market with technology, um, as are many other countries outside the United States. So it wasn't hard for me to believe that they could manage call centers that would be sophisticated enough to handle these types of tra mm -hmm. transactions. Um, um, the Indian economy is strong. Um, they're playing on a global level in so many ways. So I'm like, why would they want to beat little old me? You know, see, they, they they got big things going on. So so um, let's see what happens. And um, you know, much much credit to All Taste. That was the company. Mm -hmm. um, they're solid. They're legit. If anybody ever wants to do business on that on that level, and, and, and as as one should want to, if that's a, an area you want to dive into, everything flushed out right. Uh, and I'm glad it did because I was ready to get my one-way <laughs> ticket to India. I told him, I said, I'm coming out there for sure. I don't you're know gonna, what I will do. Pull up oh, no question. India. No. I, what we, what, come on, you lose $387,000. Right. You, you have to do, your response has to be, you have to give thought to how sick you're going to feel if you lose <laughs> right. that kind of bread. You have to give thought to that. So um, that's that's how it happened. So you got you got it for three seventy six, but the house needed work, Oh, right? yeah, yeah. We're in deep. So now you're going back and forth. Yes. Working on this house, what, every week? Every week, um, every week, every other weekend. Mm -hmm. I do some coaching. For, I coach uh, my son in wrestling. Uh, my oldest son's graduating from high school. Uh, he plays volleyball. He's involved in a bunch of, he has a show tonight, as a matter of fact, uh, in Teaneck. Um, so between parenting and leveraging time with my three sons and my youngest son, and he's just, he's dynamic. Um, I try to figure out a way to balance between making these trips to D.C. with a crew of guys from Brooklyn, in, a, in addition to some good guys we met in D.C. to get this work done. So um, we we had uh we put we did plans on the house. Uh, we, we're bringing um electricians and 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 plumbers, HVAC guys, and I've used the entire I've used HVAC guys uh from DC and New York um who've come down to to help me to do this work. Um, plumbers, electricians, and everyone kind of came together. And these a lot of these folks I used in Brooklyn to do work at the house in uh, the Yellow Block in New York. So the team is kind of already assembled and we have a trusted working relationship. I know the integrity of their work. I trust them. Um, I know the quality of their work. Um, we're like family. Mm -hmm. So we make these trips down and um, I can't be grateful enough to the guys uh, who come from all parts of the world. Some guys are from the Caribbean. Some guys are from Ecuador. I even had a crew of um, of guys from China who came out of, out of, uh, out of Queens to come down and do the, the HVAC with the with the uh, licensed contractor in DC. So um this is uh it's reflective of what I want the house to be, mm -hmm. which is universal and and uh and 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 accepting of everyone and and just an open space reflects the the integrity and the diversity of the work who of the people who've been helping me with this project. So I feel like it's you know God's hands are uh, without question guiding this process. So you still pulling money then if you got these renovations and bringing crews from oh, other yeah. states. It's it's a hustle. I'm, I'm, no, I won't. You know, I, I don't want to get. I mean, it's like um, I'm hard, like I'm. You know, booking comes in. I'm moving the money. Yeah. I'm calling. We. Just, I just found out on Friday. I have to run a new water line. That's thirty five hundred dollars. Um, he did the work on Friday. I'll when I get done here, I'll call him and make sure everything is right. Um, and but you know. It's still less, you know, being intimately involved with your work, it's still less expensive than having to sub this out to a general contractor right. because I like to be there when we open up the ceiling. I want to know where my where my BX cable runs. I want to know where my plumbing lines run so that if there's a leak a year from now, I know exactly where to go in and mm -hmm. make the repair. So um, money is an issue, right? It's mm -hmm. always an issue. Um, but... Um, you know, a scarcity of resources is certainly, it's, you know, that's something that I deal with every day. Um, but I, I keep working, I keep mm -hmm. pushing um, and and try to figure out creative ways to come up with the finance and to keep the project moving. Um, I primarily, you know, I primarily self-finance this work mm -hmm. with, you know, with the exception of the loans that were given from the, the wonderful banking institutions that opened up those doors. But um, listen, you want something to happen. We, right. we make things happen. If you want it to happen, you will make it happen, right? Um, we invest in things every single day because we want them to happen. So if you want this house to come together, then um, I knew that I had to make that commitment. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the kids who are, who are patient with me as I make these trips. Um, and um, I couldn't ask for more, more support. So I'm not doing this alone by right. any stretch. But I appreciate yeah. you being honest about that because people get into these spaces and they have the appearance or they try to pretend like right. they're making all this money and you know, they're kind of floating and then they start selling you systems to do right. what they do. And you realize that's a hustle, right? Oh, no to, question. To, to no sell, question. sell you on how they're doing what they're doing, but they, they're not as flush with cash as you think. Right. So I think it's, it's important for people to know you've been in this Airbnb game for a while. So to still be at a place where you're taking that money out, investing it in expansion, yeah. and you're yeah. not necessarily just using it on frivolous things. Oh, yeah. No, I did that too. I blew some, you know, I, no, no, don't get No, no. When I first started making money, I mean, I was, I went, I went to Africa. I went to France. Mm -hmm. I went to Paris for the marathon. I mean, you go through that stage, stage where you yes. start making some money and you're like, you know, um, I can do some different things. 
But that for me lasted quick. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, you know, growing up very humble. And um, I, I met my sisters to this day. They'll be like, you know, where are you going next? Where are you taking the kids? Where are you guys going to go? And I'm like, um, that, you know, you feel a sense of guilt, right? You know, you're going someplace and you see people who are not doing well. Um, and that always stuck with me. I, rem- I remember, um, I'll tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. I made some money and I bought this car. And um, I pulled up at the George, I pulled up at the George Washington Bridge. And I looked over at another family and uh, the father looked at me. And, and and I looked at him and he looked at me and I felt so guilty in this this mm-hmm. car that was probably more car than what I needed. A year later, I got rid of the car. I said, you know what? Um, and as much as we want to indulge in having all these wonderful things and all of these 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 uh these expensive premium items to a degree, um, there has to be a balance of practicality. And um that's just me. You know, yeah. some people are different. But I, I think I went through that phase where I had I probably had spent some money that wasn't as wise. But it, I quickly figured out if it's not making me any revenue, mm-hmm. um, or there's no, if I can't leave it for my sons and they have some residual value in this, it's probably not worth it. So I don't make emotional purchases. Um, I don't really buy what's hot at that moment. I'm not looking for trends. Um, I try to buy things that will be an investment um, for my time beyond this earth, mm-hmm. um, if that if that makes sense. Um, and I always say, well, if this was my last purchase or my last buy, does it reflect the way I would have wanted my life to sure. have been told? So um yeah, yeah, it's it's a hustle. You 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 will you will ha- you have to be comfortable with being broke right. in order to get into a space where you're less broke. I still think I'm broke. I'm still broke, right? <laughs> but I'm just less broke now than I was before. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but uh, there are still financial challenges that doesn't change. Um, I'm still worried, like everybody else, about how to make money. Um, I'm worried about how I'm going to pay these guys for doing this work. Mm-hmm. I'm worried when I leave out of here today how I'm going to pay these guys for doing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I, I got your money if they see that. I got your money. But uh, but um, you know, it's you you have to you have to think that way, Absolutely. right? You have to think that way. You don't have to, but that's you know, that's the way I look at it. Um, that's just keeping it keeping it straight up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So shifting gears, mm-hmm. tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Today. So today is the 15th of February. So six years ago today, our mother passed away. Wow. Six years ago today. I think I had made, you know, when you guys had reached mm-hmm. out, I said, you know what? I want to do this today. Um, because, you know, it's I, re- I remember that day so well. I re- You know, every year this day comes around and I think about, um, obviously we think about our mother. I, you know, when I leave out of here today, I'll call and call my sisters and my brother and talk to the kids and stuff. And my mother was so important to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Every 15th of February comes around and um and it's it's just an opportunity to reflect and to take inventory for how much she meant to us. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I want to be here today and I want to talk about my life and what has transpired because it's really a testament to everything she did mm-hmm. to make it possible for me to even be here. So um so you know, to to, to point of the question that um Today, today would be an example of that because I'll celebrate her today when I go, when I leave here, I'm going to go coach my son in wrestling. I'm going to go to a show tonight um, for my older son. And all of this experience today makes this day extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And it's not possible without this podcast, without you guys opening up a platform for me to share my little story about what life has been like for us. That's so, great. And that's we, we talk about um, how we stand on the shoulders of our elders. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they what they didn't have in money yeah, yeah, yeah. They they made up for it in teaching you about being resilient yep. and persisting yep. despite circumstances and just that grit yep. of finding a way or making one. And, and to me, you can't put a price tag on that. No, and being principled. Mm-hmm. Like my mother it was prince. I didn't realize how principled she was until I'm challenged with personal and professional decisions today. Mm-hmm. I know my answer to every decision, no matter who the people are. Because I already have a set ethos of how I'm going to operate, and my mother was the same way. I, it doesn't. I don't switch up based on who the players are, mm-hmm. because it's either it's going to be you know in that regard I'm probably conservative. It's going to be if you do this, it should be that. And um, I, 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 you know, I, I thank her for that for giving me that stability. Because if I had to switch it all the time, I don't know where I would be. That's awesome. So that's. So what's the long-term goal for Yellow Block Bed and Breakfast? You know, I think the long-term... So my goal is to open up a place, uh, the next the next Yellow Block. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to drop it in a near, um, believe it or not, near... Well, I guess I don't want to give away the business plan. I guess I got to... Yeah, you might want to leave that out. I might, yeah, I might yeah. leave this out. <laughs> so um, the plan is to expand mm-hmm. and to grow, but to grow in places that have specific needs. Mm-hmm. Because the goal is to create a housing, short-term housing opportunity um, at an affordable rate for folks to access some services that they otherwise would not have been able mm-hmm. to afford. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a socially responsible model around how we do business. 
Um, cause I believe you can make good business. You can, you can make money. Um, you can own the assets that you operate out of and you can make some money, but you can also do the right thing. I don't believe that you have to, uh, abandon doing the right thing to make money, right? Mm -hmm. The two can go hand in hand. Um, so, um, to the degree at which I can do that, our goal would be to expand the yellow block brand, um, to do good work, um, and to to make it socially responsible, but at the same time, um, you know, to make you know to make it aggressive financially. You awesome. have to make some revenue. So, so where can people learn more about Yellow Block? Uh, you can go to the uh, Yellow Block B and B Instagram page. Mm -hmm. You can go to the Facebook page, Yellow Block uh, Bed and Breakfast. Um, you can Google us, Yellow Block Bread and Breakfast. Um, just put Yellow Block uh, anywhere. You 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 know, it's such a unique name um, that um, fortunately it pops up right mm -hmm. away. Um, thank you to the good folks at Google and Google Analytics for giving <laughs> us a good placement and adjustment um, in Google. But um, we're pretty easy to find, and um, I'm easy to reach. Um, I welcome opportunities to share my story. I welcome opportunities to uh, to speak and engage and teach people about what I've learned. And even more importantly, I welcome the opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where Yellow Block is. And, you know, God willing, we will continue to glow, grow rather than flourish in that space. So they can reach out to you through the website? Yeah, well. that's mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not, um, you know, if not, then um, um, I have a publicist now. That's new. Mm -hmm. So um, she, she's available as well. That can kind of help me manage that. But I, I'm I'm not that difficult to find. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I find that the more I talk to people, the more I learn. Um, and uh, so, so I embrace that opportunity to learn and grow. Awesome. Yeah, that's it. So I told you this would go well, right? Well, I don't know if it went well. I guess so, you know, going. before we got on on air, right. for lack of a better term, you were a little nervous. Still nervous, still nervous. But you did an awesome job. Thank and you. And we're just Thank about you. at the end here. No, this was great. Well, you make it, you know what? I tell anybody, anyone, um, uh, the December 26th of podcast is great. You guys make it great. Your Thank team is you. great. Um, you created a space. This is, I mean, you guys are doing good work. Thank so, you. Um, um, if if this went well, it's an it's a tribute to you and to uh, the wonderful questions that you asked to guide the discussion. Well, I appreciate so that. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Me now too. my wheels are turning about the real estate. Oh game yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll talk more offline. Sure. I'll give you all the numbers for all the contractors <laughs> and tell you the the wins and the losses. Um, but uh, but yeah, let's, let's definitely continue the awesome. conversation. Well, yeah. to our listeners, you know we are big on supporting Black business owners Thank you. Thank you. and establishments, and it's not just about coming to you know stay because you're visiting New York or soon DC, but sure. opportunities for offsites and workshops and retreats. I'm yes. sure there are many uses um that can be made for for your space, soon to be Thank spaces. You. That's right. That's right. Um, so check that out. Check out Yellow Block B&B and the great work that Gordon is doing. Yes. Follow, like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. You know, we appreciate your support. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.